huge privilege right now to introduce our guest. Before I get into it, a little story, if you will. Um, a lot of you guys know I did this thing out of high school, high school called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And uh, it was there that I met this guy 20 years ago. 20 years ago, crazy. We were on a mission trip to Thailand. And I remember we were in a region of Phuket, just like kind of out in the jungle, you know, ministering or doing like outreach stuff at schools. And I remember there was a lunch and there was this rustle in the bushes. And we're like, oh my gosh, what's that? And out of the bushes uh, came this like guy holding a gun and a spoon. And he had like a Batman shirt on and pajamas. I know they took a picture of it. We have, yeah. <laughs> and he came out and... and and no joke, he was sent by his village to kill us and eat us. Yeah. So, turns out, we talk him out of it completely, right? We're like, what's going on? He tells us his name. His name was Pomchu Makmak. And we're like, listen, man. And we, we told him the gospel. We, uh, we cleaned him up, shaved him, clipped him, bathed him, brought him back to the Americas and taught him English. And man, this guy has just gone the distance since then. Okay, so it is my privilege. Uh, he changed his name, by the way, from Mock Mock to Mark uh, Smith, like just an English name that Americans would roll with, right? So um, give my good friend Mark Smith a round of applause. Thank you. Should I tell him the truth? No. No? Just let it go. <laughs> Okay, truth is, truth is, I've actually known Mark for 19 and a half years. No. Yeah. <laughs> Love this guy. Laugh at all of his jokes unless they're about me. Let the games begin. Okay? okay. Remember right. that I get the microphone last. Okay. Okay. All right, all right. Here we go. Right. Mark Smith, everyone. All right. Good morning, Redeemers. It is good to be with you. And I don't, I don't want Michael to tell you the truth. I had a, I had a mentor friend of mine one time say... Mark, he was a godly man, really good Christian man, really looked up to him. And he said, Mark, never, ever ruin a good story for a little bit of truth. So, uh, so the fish is always this big and the antlers were, it was a 10 point bed. So uh, it is great for me to be here uh, at your church. You have an amazing thing going. I love this church, uh, I've known this church from afar for a number of years. Uh, we came here during the pandemic. Uh, we had to, we live just south of Portland, so anywhere south of Portland, we had to come all the way to Redmond to go to church. Uh, and uh, it was a joyful time to be here to enjoy your church. Uh, I would give you a little bit about a, a background about myself so that you know uh, what you're getting for the next, Michael said, 90 minutes. No longer than 90 minutes, okay? Some of you guys have a worried look. Uh, my name is Mark Smith. I've got a slide up here. Uh, this is my family. This is us just right down the road. I think when we were coming back from your church the last time and we stopped in Sisters. So a little bit about our family. Um, I was born down in Dallas. I was actually born in Dallas, Texas, and then sticking to a good thing, we moved to Dallas, Oregon, right outside of uh, Salem. And I was lucky enough to marry my high school sweetheart, uh, sitting here front row. And we have 
three great children. We uh, started dating when we were 14 and 15 years old. Um, dads in the room, if you have daughters and they're dating somebody right now, just in that, just in that, just as a word of advice, they, they might, might marry that boy that she's with right now. Uh, we have had a great privilege of serving the Lord together as a family. We moved to Cambodia when my oldest son uh, was one year old. We moved to Cambodia, then we had two kids overseas. We lived in Cambodia for seven years as missionaries. We were in missions for 12 years working with YWAM. And the Lord, through a series of events, uh, called us home and gave me a good scholarship at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So we moved from Asia back to Boston. And we were in Boston for three years while I did my graduate work and then found my way back to Oregon because this is our hometown and we wanted to be uh, in our home state and the Lord brought me into pastoral ministry and then through some transitions we are uh, now serving and working with a nonprofit in Canby and I get a great privilege of being with a bunch of churches, seeing people like you. Uh, I love this church a lot. I, I know you were just getting to know me. Um, but Michael shares so much about you and, and the ministry and your focus on the community. This, that's me. That's it. Um, nothing better than I married my high school sweetheart and I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Everything else is just a byproduct of that. Uh, this morning, life together. Michael asked me to speak on life together. I was speaking at a church just a couple weeks ago and they assigned me uh, a portion of scripture and it was Genesis 49. I don't know if you know Genesis 49, it's land allotments. Hey, you get this portion of the land by the sea. You will go to the north, you will go to the south. Difficult to get Jesus out of the land allotments, but we did it. But when I was coming here, Michael said, hey, we're just doing this series on life together. And what it looks like as a church for life together. And there's a, there's a portion of scripture that has meant a lot to me over uh, my walk with the Lord. And in 2007, the Lord really got a hold of my heart in Bible school for the prodigal son. And some of you guys might be thinking, why are we talking about the prodigal son? We're all in church. We're all here. We're all in the church together. Why would we talk about that? How does that pertain to life together? And that's a good question. Hold on to it. What I want to uh, point out in, the, in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, that's where we're going today. Luke chapter 15. There are three things that this, this chapter talks about. We'll skim over the first two, uh, and then we'll just get right into the story of the prodigal son. We're going to look at what chapter 15 will call uh, lost, there will be a lost sheep. There will be lost coin, and there will be lost sons. Lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons. And we'll get into that plural uh, word there for sons, because most of the time we think about the lost son, the prodigal, the one that has gone astray, the one that went away. How many of us are familiar or know the story of the prodigal son? Right, many of us. So we'll look at it and hopefully see how that pertains to us here in the church as we do life together. Now, before we jump in, I, I just want to let you know of a, a major flaw. I have a lot of flaws. One of my major flaws is, and it creates a good amount of tension in our home, 
is my uh, inability to keep track of my keys, wallet, and phone. I, any, anybody else struggle with that? Anybody else? Okay. All right. I lose things a lot. In fact, I was, I, was, I was preaching on this sermon a couple years ago in my church, maybe about a year ago. I was preaching on a sermon, and I used this analogy, I used, or this metaphor about how I lose things, how I lose my keys all the time. And I'll go through the house, and I'll rip and tear through the house, and my wife's like, what is wrong with you? I didn't see this when you were 15. Uh, and I'll tear through the house and I'll rip through the drawers in, my, in, in the house. And my wife's like, why are you going through my side of the dresser? And I'm, the kids are, they just know dad's an idiot. And he's lost something again. I'm out in the garage. I'm in the fridge. And I just lose things. Well, right after I preached this sermon, I left my, I left my keys in my truck because I just often... Pull in the F-150, leave the keys in the truck. I, that's how I grew up in Dallas. That's how I grew up in Canby. Canby's a little bit like what Redmond was two decades ago, like before you guys let in Priuses. Um, so, uh, kidding, if you have a Prius, I'm sorry. Like, I love it. Um, so, uh, I just leave my keys in my truck, and I come in uh, one night, and... Uh, we, I'm looking for my keys, and here we go again. Mark's ripping through, tearing through things. And I'm like, babe, I know they're in the truck. She's like, they're not in the truck. Something, you probably put them somewhere. I tear through the house. Well, our neighbor's camera had picked up on some rascals, and these rascals came through our neighborhood, and they broke into my truck. And you know the rascals, because they were driving a lifted Dodge. And they only broke into my Ford truck. Uh, so they broke into my truck, they went through a bunch of stuff, and in the midst of that, they threw my keys and just chucked them. And so I went on for months and months wondering where these keys were. Replaced all the locks in my house. Went and bought a new key fob for all three cars. And went through and did all this, this work. And then a few months later, the neighbor comes across the street. She's like, hey, I was looking across and I noticed that you have a, a Ford F-150. You have a, a Toyota minivan. Sorry. Uh, and you have, and this looks like a house key. Are these yours? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've destroyed my house. And so right after I gave this sermon analogy, the very next Sunday, I lose something again. I constantly lose my stuff. Now I have a tile on it. I have a tile in my wallet just so I can find my stuff. Well, how does this pertain to today's teaching? When we think about things that are lost, we only look for things that are of value, right? We don't go ripping through our house for a, a big pen that we got for free at the bank. We don't tear apart our laundry. We don't tear apart the garage for something that's cheap or something that's not of value. We search for things that are of value. And this morning, as we dive into the book of Luke in chapter 15. So I just a quick, quick second here. We, Luke's gospel is very unique in the sense that we have most likely a very wealthy Theophilus. That's who the book is probably being written to. He opens up and he has hired a, a historian, Luke. So a wealthy man has hired a, a wealthy physician, Luke, to write an orderly account. Tell me the claims of Christ. 
Who is this Jesus? What is he like? What does life together look like for believers? And by all signs and indication in the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, who this book is being written to, is not a believer. But yet, there is a volume two called the Book of Acts, and it opens up again with Theophilus. And this time, it would appear that he has become a believer. So the question that we ask isn't, what's, what's, what's so great about these stories, but why did they move somebody to come to know the Lord? What was significant about something lost and found? And this is also a beautiful picture of the church, of how we see wealth and how it influences and it's used for the glory of God and it benefits everyone. It's about the stories of Luke have more stories about the poor writing to a wealthy man named Theophilus. This wealthy man, Theophilus, uses his wealth to have lasting impact. We, we have the book of Luke and Acts, nearly a third of the New Testament from one man using his wealth to benefit the whole. So that's, we'll go ahead and start the clock now, whatever Mike, Mike told me to say. So uh, we'll just go ahead and do that 90 minutes going now. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, I'll skip over a little bit, uh, so just bear with me. Verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. I need to keep going. My wife's giving me that eye, so I'm trying to not make eye contact to keep rolling. Um, but this life together, Jesus, he is. He's eating with sinners. And right now what we have, there's a crowd, there's a, a group of people coming around, and there's, there's sinners. There's those who are social outcasts, who, who the world says, those are the least, the last, and the lost. And then there are the Pharisees and the scribes and those religious leaders and those who are in the inn and they have political power and, and, they're, and they're, they're known through their community. And he says that this is the Jesus who eats with sinners. And the problem with eating with sinners and eating with tax collectors and eating with anybody in the time, the eating with somebody showed who you aligned with. That was the problem with Jesus, is that he aligned with all the wrong people, according to those who are in the inn, those who are in the in crowd, the religious leaders. So Jesus, here, we see that they're all coming together and they all want to hear about this Jesus. And Jesus goes on, and he's going to tell of this parable, and I'll just skim over it from verse 3 uh, through 7, and he's going to say, there was a man who was a shepherd, and he had, he had a hundred sheep, and one went astray, and he, he leaves the 99 to go for the one. Wouldn't that be silly if we had a, if we had a hundred coins, a hundred pennies, and you went searching for the one. What about if you leave the 99, then maybe you might lose those ones. But the shepherd, he's on mission to find that one. That we see this imagery of it's not just about the whole, but the individual. And he's going after the one. And we're left with a really compelling verse right at the end of in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who need no repentance. Think about the crowd. Think about who's listening. Think about the sinners in the room and they're all in connection with the Pharisees and the scribes. Keep that in your back, in the back of your mind as we go into the next portion. And then he goes on, he goes, hey, uh, there's, a, there's a woman and she has 10 coins. So now we're getting increasing in value. Any, any farmers in the room? Any farmers? Any farmers? Anybody who know of a farm? Yeah, there's a farm. Yeah. So if you have sheep or you have cattle, what do you raise them for? Yeah, you raise them to sell. Maybe you do use them for feeding your family and that's a good thing. But most of the time, when, we are, when we're farmers, we raise them to what? Go from having sheep or herd to getting money. And so now, exponentially, it's getting more of value in this story. He goes, and a woman, she has, she has 10 coins, but she tears apart her house again to find the one. And this is how I justify to my wife that it's biblical for me to tear apart the house. Can I get an amen for those that lose things? Yeah, yeah. It's in the Bible to tear apart your house. And now we are going to go on to... Uh, a diff- we're going to change the entirety of value. We're going to go into family. We're going to go into sons and daughters. We're going to go into the family unit. It goes from herds, from cattle, to money, to our flesh and blood. And what we're going to look at is the prodigal sons. And it's going to act, uh, in 2007, the Lord really got a hold of my heart in this passage, and I started doing some work in, the, in this passage in Bible school, and there was a lot of things that the Lord spoke to me. And then uh, several years later, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and in that book, uh, he basically lined up with everything that I concluded in my passage, so I feel like Tim took it from me, um, but he just got the book deal first. Uh, so if you do want a reference point for an amazing book, that you'll read in about two hours, read the prodigal God. And what Tim does, um, a little bit more clever than I did, he breaks it up into three scenes. When we look at this next scene, think about it as scenes in a movie. Think about how you would see a movie. You'd hear the background. You'd see the climax. You'd see the tension. And then the ending, well, let's dive into it. Verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Let's pause. We're never getting through this morning. Uh, what we have here, what is happening in the scene? We have two sons. I have two sons. I have an older one and I have a younger one. My older one was really trying to convince me last night, go ahead and use the younger one, Zadok, as the bad son. My younger son doesn't want that. But if you picture what's happening here, and it doesn't need to be just sons here. There's women in the room and daughters. The picture that's here are your kids, your offspring of high value. The, the younger son has come to his father and said, Dad, I want my share of my inheritance. I want what's coming to me. And this isn't, this isn't just like, okay, you can distribute your wealth early and pass it on to your kids and get a, a tax write-off. This is 
completely disrespectful. This is so shameful. If you look at my pie chart on inheritance that I have up here, you can see how uh, a pie chart would work. The, the older son would get a double portion. This is how it worked biblically. The older son, your firstborn son, would get a double portion. The rest of your kids would have it divided equally. The younger son has said, Dad, I want my portion now. Why is this so scandalous? Because the younger son is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. You are to me, you are dead to me. I want my inheritance as though you are dead. The word property here, we don't get to get, get this in the English as much, and it, but it's an amazing insight. The word property is the, it comes from the, word, the Greek word bios, biology. Our, our property, it wasn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a, a piece of land that we would, we would hold on to and maybe someday subdivide and, and distribute the wealth that way. The land, the way that land works is that families would get land and then they would take it down to the next generation. The next generation would expand and buy and build. And it, was, it wasn't just a part of cutting off an inheritance and saying, here's your money. You were cutting off a lineage from your family. And he says, Dad... I want, I want your bios. I want your, a part of who you are, your biology. I want my portion because you are dead to me. A scandalous request. Those who are in the crowd, think about the Jewish crowd right now. They're sitting there. They are, they are backing away. They're saying, no way. But what's even more scandalous is what comes next. And he divided his property, his bios, between them. The father said, I'll do it. Here it is. Not many days later, in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into the far country and he squandered the wealth, his property, his bios. He was reckless in his living, and he spent everything. This guy grabbed everything he had, grabbed the car keys, got his money, and headed to Vegas. Spent everything that he had in reckless living. About that time, the economy tanked, verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country, who, and this is scene one, who sent him into the fields to the pigs. Who's the audience right now? A group of Jews. What do a group of Jews think about pigs? This is lower than low. This is, this is the animal we don't eat. We don't touch. The, the pigs are filth. And we have this patriarch man, a kingly man, and his son is now feeding pigs and it gets worse and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything there's famine in the land the money's ran out the friends that he had when he had all of his money everything that he had is now gone and it's squandered away He's feeding a despised animal, and he's longing for that despised animal's food. Act one. Let's go to scene two. 
Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I got an idea. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Quickly, this position of servant that he's thinking of is lower than a slave. A slave would have had rights. A slave would have lived on his father's property. A slave would have been welcomed into the home of his father. A hired servant just came in and throughout the gate every day. So to work for a wealthy man like this guy, you would have come to work. You would have done your work, got your wage, got your food, went home, come back. And this son, he goes, he's so desperate. You got you to feel the desperation in this passage. He's saying, look, I know what I did. I know what I took from my family. But I got a plan. My father's a good man. I know he's a good man. And his servants are doing better than I am. I'm going to go to my father. I got this plan. It keeps getting better. Halfway through verse 20. But while he was still a long way off. And this begins to penetrate our hearts for the gospel. This begins to penetrate our hearts when we were still a long way off. God first loved us. When we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, God loved us. Before we ever loved him, he first loved us. You know, I I know we can get used to using the terminology that, uh, well, when I found Jesus, well... Jesus was never lost. Jesus was always there. He found us when we were dead. He was the one pursuing us. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. He sees his son and he he ran and he embraced his son and he kissed him. No man would do this of this status during this time. Running was for children, for youth, and for women. The status symbol of a wealthy man, a patriarch, would have never ran, would have never picked up his his man dress and (laughs) skirted up his loins and ran. It just, it was undignified. This is completely radical. This is completely reckless. This is... This is something that just would not have happened. So the story, you can feel the crowd. And he, and he sees his son from a long ways off. And in verse 22, but father, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead there. Verse 21, and the son said to him, father, remember his speech? I got this speech. Father, I've sinned against you in heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... His father said, servants, bring quickly the best robe and put on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring a fattened calf. And he put his jacket, a coat on him, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for what? For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began, began to celebrate. 
The coat, when you think about when we think about clothing, sometimes it can be missed in the Bible. When we think about when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God, he, he says that he clothed them before he sent them out. And this was a protection, a symbol of protection. And we see that the first animal was killed uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin. And it was also a symbol of inheritance. In the, in the, the main crux of Genesis at the end is, is this one guy's coat of many colors. And it wasn't that it was so much that it had a lot of colors and it dressed cool like Michael Watson. But the fact was that it was many colors, meaning that the colors were in layers, that it was longer, that it was a hem from, from the top down. And a hem of a row was where what went? One's inheritance. A hem, the will of somebody was sewn into the robe. How long your inseam was was the size of your inheritance. Coats were a symbol. Clothing are a symbol in the Old Testament coming into the new of an inheritance. What this father does is radical. He sees his son from, a far, from far away. He runs to him. He gets undignified and he runs to him and he says, you're home, you were lost. And he throws a coat around him and he puts his signet ring back on your family name. For some of us in this room, maybe this was that hard divorce that we went through where that person we loved was walking out and they set the ring down when they left. Maybe this was a hard breakup. We've been there. We've seen that. We've, we've experienced it. We know what that must be like when somebody leaves that symbol, that ring, that this covenant is done. This father, he runs to his son and he says, you're back. And he begins to celebrate act three. Now the older, verse 25, now the older son was in the field and he came. And as he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and he asked these things, what these things meant. And he said, your brother, your brother has come home. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused. Who's, who in the crowd is starting to get a little bit itchy right now in the Jesus crowd? We're starting to look at the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are who are in. Those are who are in the know. Those who are the ones that are, we do everything. We do the law. We're the good ones. We go to Bible study. We do it all right. Now we're starting to identify with somebody in the story. He was angry at his father. And what did his father do? Verse, at the end of verse 28, his father came, came out to him. We just saw this with who? The younger brother. The father came out to him. He ran to him. And now the father has turned to the older brother and he comes out to him and he begs and he says, hey, your brother's home, come back. And he responds. But he answered to his father, look, these many years, I have served you. you ne- I never disobeyed any of your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even identify with him as his brother, this son of yours, 
He came and he devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, for this, your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. What a powerful story, church. And the, the, the power of this story is we see these two sons. One has done everything right. One is perfect in, in the, the eyes of his father and the eyes of culture. One has never, ever done anything wrong. And there's one that has went away and he represents the sinner that's done everything wrong. He squandered everything. The word, when we look at prodigal, there's a definition that we have for the word prodigal. And when we look at this definition, prodigal, by definition, categorized by uh, to profess or wasteful expenditure, to be reckless, yielding abundantly. The definition of prodigal, wasteful, reckless, and giving abundantly. The case that in the book, The Prodigal God, that Tim Keller will make is who's actually the prodigal here? It's the father. The father, he's reckless. He, he actually gives to his son his request. He runs after his son. He sees him from a long way off and he, he runs to him. He throws a signet ring back on him and he clothes him in inheritance. And then he turns to his firstborn son. And he says, everything I have is yours. It's always been you. Right now, the crowd that Jesus is looking at, they're sitting there. They're the Jews, the uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees, sinners. They're all together. And they can identify with people in this passage. And the work for us today, church, as we leave here, as we ask scripture to read us, oftentimes we can get caught up in, this is a, it's an old book, thousands of years old, and it's about a time back then. Or we can think about it as future. It's a time about then, when we're out of here and we get out of here and we don't have to drive in the same town as Priuses anymore. But we have to ask ourselves, what's it mean to us right here and now? What's it mean to us now in this moment? And here's what I think we can take away for us today, church. As we look into this church, as we look into this, and we're about ready to take communion. We can be lost and far away from God, running and blatant in our sin. But we can also be lost and far away from God doing all the right things. Showing up at church on Sunday morning. Running small groups. Being at every prayer potluck. The point of the message this morning is what our hearts long to be with God. The son ran home to the father. Not to, not to get the father's stuff, but to be home with his father. To go, it's better than what I have right now. See, both did 
did, the, did for the wrong reasons, wrong motivations. They wanted the Father's stuff. They didn't want the Father. When I think about our lives and life together, do we long for the Father? One day, one day all this world will pass by. One day we'll be with Christ. We don't long for crowns and streets of gold and mansions. Our hearts we long for to be with Christ. Our hearts we long for to be home with him. The good news of the gospel is that we get God, that we're with him, that we're in his presence. I usually don't reference over to other texts when I'm preaching, but I'll just reference to in Matthew chapter 7, I'll leave you with this. What does this look like to, to long for God, to miss it entirely, to do all the right things like the older son? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, we see Jesus, is, and he's talking, and he's talking to these people, that, and he says, but we've done everything. We prophesied in your name. We did many signs, many miracles. And Jesus replies, I never knew you. This is a startling passage that I meditate on regularly. What does it look like to do all the right things for the wrong reasons? That we do it for the benefits of God, but not to be with God. The prodigal son reminds us that we have a radical father that's pursuing us. Sons and daughters. There's only sons and daughters in this room that we can pursue God's love for the right motives, wrong motives, whatever. But the longing is that we would be with him. When we think about a life together as a church, let us not forget a life together with Christ. Not just the works, not just the good deeds, but to be with him, to know him. As we come this morning to the table, we, we come as spectators. And now we come, we'll come forward as Michael leads us into this time of communion. We'll go from spectators to participation in the gospel. Take the prodigal son this morning or the prodigal God if you've been convinced otherwise. As you come forward, remember we come forward not as a ritual but as communion with God and with one another. Let me pray for us, church. Jesus, Luke 15, what an amazing picture of a church named Redeemers. I pray that this room would be filled with people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I pray that this church, that the heart cry of this church would be people fallen at the foot of the cross, screaming out, there's still room at the foot of the cross. Would that be the anthem of Redeemer's Church? Would the anthem of Redeemer's Church be those who were lost and have come near? Those who were lost and now are found? Those who were sinners and now you call saints? Those who were dead in their trespasses but now are washed with the blood of the Lamb? God, I thank you for this church. I pray that they would celebrate a life together following you for the good of this city of Redmond, Oregon. God, I thank you for our time together. Would you now bless us as our pastor, Michael, leads us into a time of communion with you. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank you, Mark. Just a round of applause. Thank you, Mark.